0: you would turn your turn in your bible to Matthew chapter 7 Matthew 7 and this morning we reach the end of our study in the sermon on the mount now back in December i think it was December 13th we began our journey as we saw Jesus go up on the mountain and sit down to teach his disciples and throughout this great sermon Jesus has been teaching his disciples about life in his kingdom, about what life as his followers looks like. And he's made some, some incredible claims throughout this sermon that we've seen over the past several months. And some of what Jesus has said has been radical. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Blessing is found in persecution. Those who receive the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit. Radical stuff. Some of what Jesus has said has been surprising. So just like the murderer, everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Or surprising like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Some of what Jesus has said has has been convicting. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Think something we're all tempted by. Or do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Those are convicting words. We are all tempted to anxiety. Some of what Jesus has said has been familiar. Judge not that you be not judged. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now perhaps as we've, as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount, you've been drawn to some of Jesus' words more than others. Or you really liked or, or resonated with this part rather than that part. And this is all fine, but we want to be careful here. Because while I don't think we would ever say it this way, it can be all too easy to kind of see the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' is teaching here, as like the lineup of food at Chipotle. Where it's like I know all the stuff there is good, but I'm, I'm not going to get all of it on my burrito or in my bowl. In fact, some of it I'm never going to ask for, but I'll take this and this and this every time. There can be this idea that pervades our culture that can even affect our practice of Christianity and, and our practice of evangelism, where we think that there are parts of the Christian life that we want to be faithful to embody. We want other people to see. We want to be faithful to reflect and that's going to be enough. That's going to be right and good for us. Now some of what Jesus says in this sermon, it's, it's really popular. Uh, and it's not just popular in church contexts. it's popular in our culture. There are many people who love that Jesus tells us not to judge. To love other people. They love that Jesus says uh, to do good and to be merciful. And, and the thinking would go that this Jesus must be the real Jesus. This is the good Jesus, the original Jesus, the Jesus untarnished by religion. Now, it's this Jesus that our culture would appeal to in the name of love and tolerance. And so the thinking goes that it's in listening to this Jesus that's really going to change the world. We need more of this Jesus. But the problem, and there is a problem with all of this, the problem is that the Jesus who says only these things, is not the real Jesus. If this was all that Jesus said, we would have a decidedly different Christianity than the religion that the Bible gives to us. And here at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew directs our attention to exactly why. After three chapters of Jesus' words, Matthew the narrator inserts a comment as a transition from one section of his gospel to the next, marking the end of this section when my wife, Christine, asked me what I was going to preach on this Sunday, she was like, are you really going to just preach on these two verses? And I said, yes, I'm going to preach on just these two verses. So we're going to be looking at these two short verses that end this section on the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew, in these two verses, highlights the effect that Jesus had on his listeners. So let's look together at the words of God, the the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient words of God in Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 28, and we're going to read all the way to verse 29. And when Jesus finished saying these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Every word breathed out by you profitable for us, and would you open our eyes, Spirit, that we may behold wondrous word, wondrous things out of your word? Would you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, uh, lives that would be transformed by you as we look to you in your word? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's uh, picture the scene together for a moment. And picture it not, as, not in an animated way. This is not the Pixar version. Not in a TV show way. This is not some production. But in a very authentic real way. As real as we are right now. So the setting would have been not all that different from what we're experiencing right now. This guy Jesus is on a hillside. And as he's been teaching his disciples, a crowd of people has started gathering around him. Now there are, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that are, have now gathered around and are listening to this seemingly ordinary man, unremarkable man, this Jesus from Nazareth. And they're listening to him teach. The crowd that's gathered has heard many teachers teach. And they've heard of even many more teachers than they've heard teach. These teachers were the scribes. Scribes were those responsible and authorized to teach the law. They were in one sense the stewards of the law of God. And years and years of training had gone into their work, making them experts in the law. So the scribes would know the law of Moses backward and forward. They would know the ins and outs of all the laws that God had given. But they weren't just experts in in the law of Moses and the words that we read in the Old Testament. They were also experts in tradition. These scribes would have known all of the famous teachers, all of the rabbis. But not only would they have known who they were, they would have known what they taught. They would have known their famous sayings. Now, many in this crowd gathered around Jesus, they had listened to these scribes, and they had come to them with questions. These, these scribes were, were the esteemed ones, the experts in their communities. And the answers that these scribes gave were always found, the wisdom that they brought was always found in what came before them, in the law and in tradition. So they would say, you would come with a question, and they would say, well, the law says such and such. And then they would say, make this comment, Rabbi so-and-so taught that this meant this. And that's what they would do. That would be the, the authority they had. The authority of the scribes, it was a, a derived authority. It came from something or someone else. I had this experience recently as I was as I was working on my PhD and writing my dissertation, I would send stuff to my supervisor and I would I would make some brilliant claim and it would just the sentence would be there and my supervisor would either write footnote question mark or like based on what question mark. And I it disciplined me as I was writing to to realize I, every claim that I make, every assertion that I make, it's got to be based on something. Um, my, my work here is not just, hey, these are Devin's great thoughts, but these are the thoughts that I've synthesized from a lot of other great thoughts. And that was the only way that I could write my dissertation. That's how academic work is. Similar to that of the scribes. It was, it was all their authority, their wisdom, it was always derived. So m- my point and their point could only stand if it cited someone else, if it pointed somewhere else. But think of what the crowds experienced on that day, sitting on that hillside. Again, this this seemingly ordinary, unremarkable young man in his early 30s, sitting down on the hill, teaching them. And he comes, and he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I tell you, If you go back and read Matthew 5-7, through read it in its entirety. Again and again and again and again and again, you hear Jesus making this statement. I say to you, I tell you. Do you know what Jesus didn't ever say in the Sermon on the Mount? Rabbi so-and-so says. Now this isn't that surprising, that he didn't appeal to rabbis. But do you know what else he doesn't say? Which kind of is surprising when you think about it. He doesn't say... Thus says the Lord. That's something that we read in the prophets. Often, thus says the Lord. The Lord said this. But Jesus comes and simply says, I say to you. Jesus came and he spoke his own words in his own name. So confident was he of his own authority, of his grasp of truth, that he simply said, I tell you. And it is this authority that Jesus speaks with that is precisely so astounding to the people gathered on this hillside. And consider the confidence with which he makes these statements. Look just a few verses before it, Matthew 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine... And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And this man is then, this wise man is compared to the foolish man who hears the words of Jesus and does not do them. So sure was Jesus of his own teaching, of his own authority, that he presented it as the definition of wisdom. And just just imagine if Larry or I or John or anybody else came here and did that. Hey, you've heard that it was said in this book, this, but hey, I say to you, I mean, think of of how quickly you would be heading down the hill and getting into your car. I know I would be. You don't want a preacher who comes and preaches himself because our, our authority that we have is a derived authority. The only reason I'm up here this morning is to teach what's in this book to teach what's already been said, what's already been revealed. But Jesus comes and teaches based on his own authority. And this was astounding. I tell you. Never had the crowds heard anyone speak this way. Because if someone did speak that way back then, everybody would have been bending down and picking up rocks. And that person, that was a sure death sentence to say, I tell you. Now take a moment and, and just think about a time that you were astonished. A time when you were, you were blown away, you were astounded or, or dumbfounded, flabbergasted. A moment when your jaw dropped in amazement. I was talking to uh, Joey Hutchinson a couple weeks ago, and they were on their way to the Grand Canyon this past weekend. And that, that's one moment that I remember in particular being astonished. When I I stepped to the, I've seen many pictures of the Grand Canyon, I'm sure you have as well, but if you've never actually been there, there are just no words to describe what you see. It's jaw-dropping. Astonishment occurs, by definition, when we least expect it. We might expect something great, but astonishment happens when what we experience and see is so much greater. It happens when our expectations are outmatched by reality. And as Jesus taught, what most astonished, what most amazed his listeners was not so much what he said, although it was true and incredible, but the way that he said it, and more importantly about what this said about himself. Jesus does not bring his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as a self-help presentation. It's not a therapeutic approach to the Christian life. His goal was not to make his listeners feel accepted and to feel good about themselves, Jesus' own words were not ever meant to turn his listeners in on themselves. What we see in these two verses, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, is that the main point of his sermon, what Matthew wants to highlight for us, the impact on his listeners, the taste that was left in their mouths was not about them, but about him and his authority. This was no ordinary teacher. Ultimately, the question that this sermon confronts us with is not primarily a question of what, but of who. If we truly listen to the sermon, the questions we're left with are not, what do you think about the sermon, or what must I do in response to this teaching, but who is this teacher? Who is this man that would speak in this way? Jesus doesn't come teaching, just hoping that people might listen to him and heed his wise words. He's not that professor or teacher or coach or parent who has this just brief moment of inspiration and is just hoping that their brilliance isn't lost on their listeners. That's not Jesus. No, Jesus comes teaching as Lord overall, as lawgiver, as God himself. Jesus comes as the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And it's this fact, the fact of his authority, and not the brilliance or wisdom of his words, that is so astounding to his listeners. So what did Jesus say about himself? What about his authority was so astounding? Well, there's much here in this sermon worth considering with the rest of our time together. We're going to look at just... Two aspects of what Jesus reveals about himself in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of these things have come up as we've made our way through the sermon, but we want to step back and get this broad view of exactly who Jesus says he is throughout the scope of his teaching. So, two aspects. First, Jesus teaches with authority as Christ. Jesus teaches with authority as Christ. The Christ is the anointed one the Messiah, the one who was promised from of old. The Old Testament law and prophets, they all pointed forward to this one who was to come. So we read in Genesis 3.15 that after the fall, God promises Adam and Eve that one will come who will crush the serpent's head. One will come. He promises Judah that a ruler will come from his line from whom The scepter shall not depart, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He will come, and he will rule and reign forever. This is the promise to Judah. He promises David, Judah's descendant, the first king in Judah's line, that a king will come from his line, whose throne will be established forever. He tells him, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Through Isaiah, God prophesies that a Redeemer will come to Zion. Malachi says that for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is the, the promised one all throughout the Old Testament, all pointing to one who will come. Just like the sun will rise tomorrow morning, this one, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. So again and again and again and again, the people of God are told that one will come, that one is coming, who will rule and reign, who will rescue and redeem, who will deliver and save. And Jesus comes. And he says, he is come. Look at Matthew 5, 17. Jesus in his sermon says this, do not think that I have come, I've come. To abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is the one. He is saying that he is the one who has long been told of. One is to come, and now indeed that one has come. And he has come to fulfill all that has been said of him. He comes as the Christ, he comes as the Messiah, the promised one. He comes in righteousness, fulfilling every aspect of Of God's law. He comes in perfection, succeeding where every other human had failed. Everyone had failed. He comes to fulfill. There is none righteous, no not one. All have turned aside and gone their own way. Adam failed. Abraham failed. Jacob failed. Moses failed. David failed. Everyone who came before could not keep this law, could not fulfill it. But Jesus comes and says, I have come to do it, and I will do it perfectly. This seemingly ordinary and unremarkable carpenter from Nazareth has come to do what no one else ever could. But not only that, as the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, he is the one whom all the promises of God find their yes in. As the one to whom everything points, he is the center of all of history. So, Jesus teaches with authority as Christ. He teaches in this sermon that he certainly is the Christ, the very Son of God, the long-awaited one. It's the first thing that we see here. Second, Jesus teaches with authority as judge. Jesus teaches with authority as judge. And we see this in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. We looked at this last week briefly. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice the assumption that he makes here in verse 21. This cry of Lord, Lord. It's not directed to the Father, but to him. Not everyone who says of me, Lord, Lord. He acknowledges openly, that people will call him Lord. And he doesn't do anything to correct or adjust this. Right here, Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus is describing himself as as God. And then Jesus makes this even more explicit in the next verse. In verse 22, Jesus says, On that day many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now there's much we could comment on in these verses, but just picture this in your mind. Again, Jesus, this seemingly ordinary and unremarkable carpenter from Nazareth, sitting atop this mountain teaching. And in the course of his teaching, he's saying that on that day, when you look to enter the kingdom of heaven, I will be there. Think about uh, the astounding nature of this. I mean, I try to think of something comparable, and you just kind of there's not much you can come up with. But like, think of the mechanic, the auto mechanic in Damascus, Damascus, Maryland, that is, saying, coming out and saying, gathering people around him and teaching, and saying, "Yeah, on that day, that last day, when you're trying to enter the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to be there." Like that's it's just crazy. But Jesus was one who taught with authority. And it was astounding. But not only will he be there, not only does he say, I will be there. Just as I sit here now on this mountain, Jesus says, I will sit there then on my throne. And all people, all the people of the world will come before me and I will be their judge has anything more astounding ever been said? Jesus is emphasizing that not only will there be a future judgment, but that he himself will be its main character. Humanity will come to him to be judged. And their destiny, humanity's hope, will be tied not to what they did, but will be tied to their, their hope will be tied to their relationship with him. So people will come and say, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did all these mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, all that, all that matters on that day is whether I knew you or not. Your relationship with me. So Jesus Christ teaches that he comes with authority as Christ and as judge. So how do we respond to all this? What do we do with this? Now, in the first place, we should be astounded. Just as Jesus' original listeners were, we should be dumbfounded. We should be taken aback, amazed at the authority of Christ. Let's not let our familiarity with this book and these narratives and this doctrine keep us from awe and wonder and amazement at the person of Jesus Christ. We can be very familiar with these stories. They can be somewhat unremarkable to us because of our familiarity. But there is no one who ever was or who is or whoever will be like the person we encounter on these pages, like Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the one who comes in righteousness and rules with justice. He reigns in power and grace. He is the one who is now seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. All things have been put under his feet, and he is head over all things. This is Jesus Christ. Be astounded at who he is. There is no one like Jesus. But while we should be astonished and amazed as we look to Jesus, it's not enough only to be astonished and amazed. We have to be changed as we look to him. Our reaction must go beyond astonishment. Because Jesus comes as Christ, as judge, as the very Son of God. He is the one who enters the world at the right time. The one who comes as Savior. Our response must recognize that our only hope is not in us, but in him. And the Sermon on the Mount, it it strikes all the earthly confidence. All the earthly confidence. Everything that we might hold on to, it strikes it with this deathly blow that there is no hope of salvation in our performance, in our ability to be good enough. No hope for salvation in anything that we might do. No hope for salvation in anyone else we might look to. We all fall short of the glory of God. And no matter what we do between now and the end of our lives, we cannot make ourselves righteous or acceptable before God. We have no place before him. We cannot save ourselves. But Jesus comes and says, Blessed are those who find their life in me. Blessed are those who trust in me. Blessed are those who follow me. Blessed are those who look to me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes to give those without hope an eternal hope. And that hope can be realized only in relationship to Him. This is where new life and, and true life is found in Him and Him alone. It's in Him that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's in Him that we are chosen to be holy and blameless. It's in Him that we're adopted to the praise of His glorious grace. It's in Him that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Brothers and sisters, all we have, all we need, all we want is in Him. The Sermon on the Mount is an astounding declaration. But what is astounding is not the morality presented, as remarkable and wonderful as it is. What is astounding is the authority of that Jesus Christ claims. This sermon cannot be read without being directed to Him, back to Him. Hopefully, we don't all blow away. This sermon cannot be read without being directed back to Him and the importance of finding our life and our hope. In relation to him, being united to him, and so, brothers and sisters, dearly beloved, we we look to him alone, knowing that as Paul says, God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's us. Love uh, the the hymn in. On Christ the solid rock I stand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And Jesus ends his sermon appropriately where we should end. When he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. The winds, they blew. More than this. They blew and they beat on that house, but that house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Sand. you pray with me? Father, thank you for... The authority that your son came with, authority that that brings life to the dead, authority that is light in the darkness, authority that speaks truth in the face of all the lies this world presents, and Lord, may we be astounded by who he is, and may we be compelled to follow him and put our trust in him alone not looking to the wisdom of this world, not looking to ourselves and what we might do, but looking to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. When we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.